0: island minds the mental health podcast please note these episodes deal with topics that some listeners may find distressing for suggested contacts please see the show notes on our facebook page after this episode are you tia jackson one half of island minds the mental health podcast
1: (laughs) yes autographs are 25 pounds photo ops are 40 (laughs) oh dear and just for the benefit of our listeners i'd like to say this is actually how hannah greeted me on the first days after our podcast got released and it made me incredibly uncomfortable because i'm not very good at taking compliments or giving myself a pat on the back but i think it is fair to say we're podcasters now i guess <gasps> that really you said it
0: you said we are podcasters Oh my god, I am so proud of you right now. You said it, your words. Um, Fuck the date and time. <laughs> but it is fair to say, I may have had delusions of grandeur for that first week at really, least. No,
1: I, I loved carrying you around
0: on that throne, it was fine. <laughs> <laughs> I was just super excited!
1: <laughs> no, you were fine, but what I just realised, and the reason I was able to say it is, I'm happy to call you a podcaster, I struggle more with myself, but if I'm happy to say... That you've done very well and I'm proud of you, then I should try and say the same to myself, even though it physically pains me to do Well, it.
0: maybe this is the start of a brand new tier. Oh, God. What are worrying <laughs> for? <laughs> We've created a monster. Brace yourselves. <laughs> but in all seriousness, we're on episode two of something we were terrified would we'll never even make it past half of episode 1. And we're on Spotify, you know, that's that's home to the podcast greats.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it is cool and I do think we should be proud and we've had such an amazing reaction from people. I know we've got a lot of thank yous to give. I'll let Hannah take the lead on that, but from me, thank you so much to everyone who has listened and for your lovely feedback and comments. I know Hannah will join me in saying we've actually cried at some of the feedback we've received. And that's the nice stuff. Thankfully, not anything horrible yet, touch wood. But I'm sure we'll cry at that too if it does come. (laughs) But no, it's been really lovely and heartwarming. and has genuinely meant the world to us. So thank you so much, everyone.
0: Yeah, and I'm going to echo what Tia said. We have so many people to thank. If you've shared any of our posts, if you've liked our posts, if you've commented, if you subscribed or rated us or even just listened to the podcast or we are so grateful. Everything you've done has helped us reach more people. And it's thanks to you guys that we're now getting people contacting us about appearing on the podcast or wanting to know more about what it is we're doing. And we should say a big thank you to Claire who created our jingle, and Vectus Radio for playing our podcast, and The Observer for giving us a lovely little write-up as well. So lots of people, lots of support, and we are so unbelievably grateful so thank you. Thank you! (laughs) That took me by surprise. I got excited. I love it. So today we are going to be welcoming a guest who's going to be talking about living with emetophobia and BPD but before that me and Tia want to talk about a subject that we briefly touched on last time and it is quite a difficult subject to discuss without getting impassioned And by impassioned, I do mean expletive. Today's topic is stigma. Now, before we even get started, I think it's hugely important to note that stigmatised attitudes can literally stop people reaching out for help. Now, the definition of stigma, as per our good friend, Professor Google, is a mark of disgrace associated with a particular circumstance, quality or person.
1: What stands out to me in that definition is the word disgrace because I think when we talk about stigma, people think it's people being unkind or a lack of understanding. While it is those things, it does go much deeper than that and it can lead to feelings of shame to such an extent that, like you said, it it can cost lives and, and stop people from getting the help that they need and even in some cases talking about it and it is it's so inherent in our society that it's a really hard topic to unpack and it's really hard to know where to start even which i think we've found from this being our second take of this episode it's interesting that we're talking about stigma because despite us being at a stage where we um were vocal about our own mental health and from my point of view, I was at a stage where I'm very comfortable with my mental health conditions and sort of to the point where I I have accepted them. So I thought I was quite open about that and and honest with people. And yet when you asked me to do this podcast, I was actually quite reluctant to begin with. I had to really think about it. And um, My first instinct was to say no because I was scared um, not only to hear my own voice (laughs) recorded but I was scared that specifically people at work and this is no slight on them it's how I feel about myself but I was worried I'd be treated differently if I was this open about my own self and it's not even that I thought people would be unkind or anything because we have a a lovely work family but it's that I was worried people would see me as less me or, or a weaker version of me or that they'd need to baby me in some way or one of my big Things that I and this is again my problem, but I hate the idea that anyone would pity me. I don't. I don't want to be treated differently. However, that comes.
0: If you were to sum that up in sort of a statement, it would be: I am not my diagnosis. There is, there's more to me than that. That is part of me, but I don't want to be identified by that alone. And I think people have do have a tendency when they find out that you do have a mental health condition. All of a sudden, their behaviour changes when you are still the same person you were the day before you told them.
1: And I think it's that really hard balance of being comfortable to talk about it, but it not finding you, because you get that fear that if you start talking about it, it you're being too vocal about it, and mm. especially with mental ill health and these sort of attitudes of, you know, just keeping it behind closed doors and mm. getting that- on with it.
0: Yeah, that's a good point, and I want to just hone in on that being too vocal about it because I can't imagine there really being a situation where someone turns around to a friend and says you're being too vocal about your broken leg like it isn't about being too vocal it's about speaking up about conditions and illnesses that affect people's everyday life is very debilitating and can in some cases cause severe reactions So I think people need to step away from this whole you're being too vocal when it comes to mental ill health because we're not.
1: So there's a great part in your interview with Maggie, actually, where she's she's talking about that idea where people think she's being too sensitive or too emotional. All of those sorts of comments. And it's just an example of people treating you differently. And something she talks about as well that I find really interesting. I don't want to spoil too much of the interview here, but obviously when she's talking about her Borderline personality disorder, she says as soon as she mentions the words personality disorder, people people change. And it got us talking earlier about acceptable levels of mental health where people can understand it. And and then there seems to be a stage where it crosses over into just labeling people as crazy or psychotic or dangerous, all yeah. of these misconceptions.
0: The moment someone talks about borderline personality disorder or conditions like bipolar. There is this idea that they are dangerous people. But the truth is they're actually more vulnerable. So a bit like we said last time, this is where we need attitudes to change rather than looking at that as, all oh, that person is, is potentially dangerous to me or, you know, to a situation. They're not. They're actually very vulnerable and probably need the support of the people that are directly around them.
1: There's such... A deep level of stigma surrounding those sorts of conditions. Someone's ill.
0: That is the baseline of this. If everyone in the world could accept it in the same way, I think we're going to say this in every episode, but if everyone could just accept it in the same way they do everything else, there wouldn't be such a problem with people's attitudes. So many great examples of stigma. Self harm is attention seeking. No, it's not. People self-harm for a myriad of reasons. It's not about attention-seeking. That's an incredibly harmful thing to say. I remember at school knowing a few people that were self-harming, and they were. They were treated like they were drama queens. And to be honest, I can't really remember the faculty doing all that much about it when it was quite blatant in classrooms.
1: Quite a common misconception is that self-harm, I'd imagine... That people think of it uh, typically as people cutting themselves. That would be my... I don't know about you. Would that be your instinct that that's what people would
0: assume? Yeah, it's the immediate self-harm must be they've slit their wrists. And that's how it's always depicted in in media. Some people bite themselves, hit themselves, scratch themselves. Any form of self-harm is in there. But for some reason, cutting of the arms...
1: There's so many other ways you might see self-harm as well. Some, mm. some people will eat poorly, not eat <clears throat> at all, drink too much.
0: I will just quickly say that when I was, actually, no, not when I was, I'm going to be honest. Even to this day, I when my OCD is very bad or my anxiety is rife, I bite my knuckles And when I was at school, particularly middle school, it wouldn't be unusual for me to have scabs on every single knuckle on my hand because I would just sit there and gnaw at them. Now, at the time, I didn't think anything of it. But looking back on it now, I know why I did that. And it was a form of of self-harm.
1: I'm, I'm really proud of you for sharing that because now I feel like I, I wasn't sure if I should, but I can share that. Thankfully, it's been a long time since I have, but I've self-harmed as well. I hit myself in the past, scratching myself is a common one, but something I didn't really consider to be self harm, but it is something I really struggle with is walking out in the street in public if, it, if it's busy and that doesn't have to be people in the street it can be if there's a lot of cars going past I feel like everyone's looking at me well, I try not to do anything that would draw attention to myself now in my head that can include taking off a jacket so I've had occasions where it's really hot weather but because I don't want to draw attention to myself I will get to a point where I'm nearly passed out because I don't want to take the jacket off. And it's then led to panic attack and, you know, dehydration, feeling faint because I'm just not looking after myself when I should be. I just wanted to highlight that there's so many different types of self-harm and that, unfortunately, it can be quite a common part of of daily mental ill health.
0: It's a hard topic to discuss and, obviously, people should seek help if they are self-harming, but it's something that does happen and we just need to talk about it a bit more.
1: It's interesting that you said about people at school and, and that sort of attitude towards it, because I remember around that time I, I had friends who self-harmed. And I honestly, I, think I bought into the attitude that it was attention seeking because that's what I was being told. And this is an example of where these misconceptions are so inherent and so much of the stigma surrounding mental health is just that lack of information and misinformation and unfortunately just a lack of education about it really we've actually had people say to us after listening to the podcast that they've previously not understood mental health and sort of dismissed talking about mental health and mental ill health um, because they were always taught to just get on with it and you know and that it is a weakness stiff upper lip and all these attitudes but actually when they've taken the time to listen and get to understand it a bit more, they've had their minds changed. And that's amazing. That's that's what we want.
0: I just want to add to that. You mentioned the, the word weakness. And I'm going to say this again, and I'm sorry if it sounds like I'm repeating this point in every podcast, but it's so important. Mental ill health isn't a weakness in the same way that any other illness is. It's something that unfortunately someone has, due to whatever reason and they live with that every day so everyday tasks like traveling or going to work getting a haircut things that we would generally assume are normal easy things to do they're not easy they're actually challenging and the fact that people are able to still get up every day do the same day everyone would do but with all those additional challenges that's strength
1: it's a bit of a or it can it can feel like a cheesy phrase as can a lot of the (coughs) phrases we say to ourselves in in sort of self self self-help methods but every day is a victory to be honest like every day you get through when you are feeling that bad is a win Mm -hmm. but it is about getting that information out there and, and having these open and honest conversations and it's hard especially if people have been told their whole lives that this is a shameful topic or you shouldn't bring it up or it's not something you talk about and and that it is a weakness and all of these misconceptions then that that's a hard thing to then relearn
0: and there's an ongoing problem here with this whole keeping things behind closed doors and we've kind of bred an environment for a okay not okay culture
1: yeah so it's been quite a big movement in recent years of the it's okay not to be okay or it's okay to not be okay whichever way round you want that I think this is particularly true of the UK we're very we're you know very sort of stoic bunch (laughs) it's generally deemed socially acceptable when people ask you if you're okay or how you are you're supposed to say I'm fine or I'm great I'm good the trouble is a lot of us say it even when we're not and I really tried a couple of years ago to to challenge that and and be open and honest about when I wasn't feeling okay because I didn't want to feel ashamed if I wasn't feeling good, or I wanted to normalise it, just like we're trying to do with mental health here. So I would try, and people would say, "Um, you know, how are you?" I'd say, "Not good." The trouble was, then they'd say, "Why?" Um, and I know they'd have the best attention because they wanted me to feel good. But if I had said I was fine, they wouldn't have asked why. <laughs> so it really needs to go both ways. It needs to just be, I'm not feeling great today. Oh, OK, that's fine. Your feelings are valid. I think I sort of gave up on that after a while because I got fed up with people asking me why I wasn't OK. Mm. Uh, I tried it again the other day. You were there. Someone said, are you all right? You don't seem yourself. I said, actually, I'm not feeling good. And I nearly did well. And then I said, sorry. <laughs> I apologised for not feeling good, which is ridiculous. It's something that's very ingrained in our culture and is going to be very hard to overcome.
0: It's a natural thing. If someone says they're not feeling well or they're sad or something like that, you your natural reaction is to ask why. And I think I've actually learned this from you. If someone says to me they're not feeling well, my response now is okay, your feelings are valid, and that's kind of it, but I've learnt that from you. Like, before meeting you, I would have done the same. I'd have been like, oh, no, what's wrong? You know, it's it's a natural reaction.
1: Yeah, and you're completely right there. It's, it is natural, and as I said, it is well-meant from people.
0: It's interesting to me, because I feel like there's almost an element of being embarrassed, because if you were just feeling a bit under the weather and, and someone said, oh, you know, everything okay, and said, yeah, I just got a headache today... It doesn't feel the same saying, I don't know why I feel this way, I just I just do. Like It's almost like, because you can't quantify it, it's, it's very embarrassing to talk about. And I think that's that's really problematic because it shouldn't be, you shouldn't have to justify how you're feeling.
1: Exactly, yeah. And you talking about the feelings, a valid comment. I know something we've discussed a lot is particularly related to self-esteem. We've had, it's very well meant, but partners, friends, families, you know, if we're having those moments where we say, oh, I'm feeling really ugly or I'm feeling really crap about myself, blah, blah, blah. And people say, well, no, you're amazing. That's lovely. I know you're trying to boost my confidence, but that's not going to instantly change my mind because I, I am still feeling this way. And actually what are telling me there is like, you know, because sometimes people say, oh, don't say that about yourself. It's not true it feels like you're then berating me for feeling like that. So then that makes me feel guilty and makes me feel worse about it. So what we say to each other, as you've mentioned, is, OK, your feelings are valid. I don't agree. I think you're lovely or I think you're beautiful. But it's OK that you're feeling this way and I hope you feel better.
0: And it's such a simple change to the discourse. Just saying your feelings are valid, however, I it, it's so simple but so effective and it... It could make so many people feel better. Homework. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, we, we set a lot of homework, don't we, pretty strict?
0: We do. I think it's going to have to be a thing now in every every episode.
1: <laughs> as long as you do the marking.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I've got my Get my red and green pen out.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. Obviously, <laughs> you don't want your friends, colleagues, whatever, you don't want them to be feeling bad, but unfortunately it can feed into these feelings of shame and this overall culture of stigma that it's it's not okay to feel that way and that you're you know it leads people to to not talk about things and to repress those negative feelings Mm -hmm. and in a lot of situations they will pretend they are okay and you know you you don't know that something's wrong and obviously that can lead to really severe mental health conditions Mm -hmm. sometimes in the worst cases you know you hear like I have personal experience of this, but you also hear people say, I can't believe they committed suicide. Mm. They seem so happy. You know, people put on one face to the world but might be feeling completely different inside.
0: Talking of showing a different face, I think sometimes things happen that shock you because you really weren't expecting it. And it's in those moments that you take a step back and think, Oh my god what one of these moments happened quite recently for me and for those of you that don't know very sadly and very tragically the tv personality nikki graham who many of us remember from big brother passed away recently after a long battle with anorexia which, as a side note, and we will come back to this a little later in the episode, is a highly stigmatised mental health illness. She was 38 years old, and that's so young. You know, she was an incredibly strong and brave young woman. Whenever you saw her on TV, she was bubbly, she was smiley, she was happy. She was showing all the signs of a happy, healthy TV personality, and yet underneath it all was this this battle and that's that's the reality of it that that unfortunately is is how it is for a lot of people and the first thing I thought of when I saw this on social media of course was what an absolutely heartbreaking tragedy but was oh my god what are the comments going to be like and to give people their dues there were so many supportive comments so many people saying We need to be talking more about eating disorders. We need to understand them better. But as always, you had your... Oh, she just needed a a good roast dinner. All those sorts of things. Hang on a minute. This is a 38-year-old woman who was battling an absolutely life-controlling illness. She even booked herself into a rehab centre to try and get on top of this and unfortunately lockdown just had such a negative effect on her that she lost her battle with it and it made me really sad that even in a moment like that where the, the true enormity of of what this can do was highlighted people still felt the need to post comments that just insinuated that she just needed to eat, she just needed to get over it, put some meat on her bones. How are we? How are we still there? How is that still where some people go to? I I don't know. It, it makes me really sad, but also quite mad.
1: <laughs> yeah, I honestly don't have words for those kind of comments. It's it's awful, absolutely awful. And I, I really, I just can't believe when people have a choice to be kind to others or not that they choose not to be and and not just choosing not to be kind but they go out of their way to be unkind
0: yeah it is it's it's absolutely baffling and I think we'll we'll come back to this on a later episode talking about online bullying and hating and its effect on mental health and I know there has been a lot of examples of this recently As I said a minute ago, anorexia is one of those illnesses that is highly stigmatised. There are a lot of perceptions of it. And there are a lot of stereotypes that are fuelled by stigmatised attitudes and they're quite dangerous, but here's a couple. Anorexia is all about wanting to be thin. Now, yes, body image is part of an eating disorder, but there are so many other reasons why someone might suffer from anorexia or another eating disorder such as bulimia or binge eating that can be about control it can be a response to trauma it's not just the standard issue reasons that people have through whatever reason you know the media or what they've been exposed to themselves it's not always that there are so many other reasons ocd sufferers must always be clean i can tell you now i am not well i'm clean like i don't want you to think i'm unhygienic but i am not tidy and i don't need things to be in lines i don't categorize my herbs in alphabetical order some people do and some people's experience of ocd is that but mine isn't and this is another thing that people who don't understand mental ill health but actually in some cases people with experience with it Also, need to understand mental health is a continuum. So, a diagnosis won't always look the same when it's given to different people. And the mental health continuum goes from being mentally healthy all the way down to being quite severely ill. Just because you are suffering from OCD or anxiety or bipolar doesn't mean someone else with the same diagnosis is going to be experiencing the same thing. So, we can't project our experience onto someone else we can probably empathize a lot better than other people but projecting your experience and saying well i don't do that with this that all ties in with stigmatized notions of each individual disorder So another common misconception with mental health is that it's all in the mind and it's something that can be cured with positive thinking. But actually, mental health has very physical symptoms. You know, there are several symptoms that are very physical and very dangerous. And one of them is hyperventilation. Now, Tia, you know a bit more about this than me. So did you want to have a chat about hyperventilating?
1: I just wanted to say I like i imagine a lot of other people had misconceptions with hyperventilating before i had therapy because i imagine if you ask most people they'd say they have an image of someone breathing into a brown paper bag when you mention hyperventilation actually hyperventilation can occur over a long period of time so normally with healthy breathing There's a healthy balance between breathing in oxygen and breathing out carbon dioxide. When you're hyperventilating, you upset this balance by exhaling more than you inhale. So that can be happening over a very long period of time, very slowly, you might not realise you're doing it. When I had my therapy, I'd say how tired I was all the time and she said, you're hyperventilating all the time. Hyperventilating can occur very slowly over a long period of time and then when it um, reaches a critical point, you know, things like panic attacks can happen, something I suffer with a lot, and I know you do, Hannah. And it's frustrating because and this is where the misconceptions come from. When when you're in that moment you feel like you can't breathe. But actually it's just that you need to get that balance right again between the oxygen and carbon dioxide. So you, you need to breathe slowly and get that breathing regulated. So so it's actually about getting that breathing even. So it might not look as dramatic as as you'll see in, in films and things with a brown paper bag and breathing out slowly can be as important as as breathing in as well so i have a routine of five seconds of breathing out and three seconds of breathing in and that that worked for me so i count it on my fingers so if you ever happen to pass me in the street and i look like i'm counting on my fingers i'm trying to stop having a panic attack on the subject of panic attacks, that they're a great example of, like you said, mental health being very physical. And I really wanted to bring up another great thing I learned in therapy is that, and and this is a great point about you saying it's all in the mind. Actually, I learned that biologically, our bodies are designed to deal with danger. So the example they always use is prehistoric times. You might have um, a wild animal coming at you. So your body's equipped with the fight or flight response. Now, unfortunately, your body's still equipped with that response. But what we perceive to be dangers are different. So you struggle with traveling at the moment. I struggle with people looking at me when I'm walking down the street. So all those physical reactions still happen because our brain registers those things as dangers or threats um so for example our throats go dry
0: the whole throat going dry thing is why I struggle to swallow and a big part of my traveling anxiety I'm not actually nervous about traveling or if, you know the car crashing or anything like that the moment I get into a car I can't swallow and i can't i can't actually explain how it feels not to be able to swallow but it's freaking terrifying when it's happening
1: yeah that sounds awful so basically your body goes into high alert mode and anything that isn't Uh, critical sort of goes to the back burner so um swallowing not as important your muscles tense because you're getting ready Mm -hmm. to react your heartbeat Mm -hmm. increases for the same reason the muscles that don't need to be focused on might relax so you might Mm -hmm. have bowel problems because
0: (laughs) your body's just like okay like not worried about that right now definitely been in that situation
1: it's it's a common thing a lot of people experience it from stress and it's you know all these symptoms are just proof of how physical and stress and mental health can be you were telling me earlier about some research you did into this and there was a freeze option as well so fight flight and freeze
0: yeah so we always hear about fight or flight we're all quite aware of what they mean but there is also a third behaviour and that is freeze and we don't tend to hear about that one so much. I have heard of freeze before but from the perspective of someone who manages animal behaviour I wasn't actually aware that it is part of this whole fight-flight scenario when it comes to mental health but it, it is basically you you just freeze. You, you just go into complete nothing mode as a way of reacting to panic or stress or trauma if you're experiencing freeze you're likely to have symptoms such as heaviness or stiffness you might be holding your breath and not understanding why decreased heart rate feeling sort of stuck or or numb it's those sorts of things
1: that's really interesting
0: i don't think people know enough about it and i think more people should maybe look into that because i I think a lot of people will feel that but they will assume it fits into the flight or fight category and it actually doesn't. So we've talked a lot about stigma and stereotypes and how they seem to fuel each other but there are other stigmatised views which seem to attack mental health as a whole and some of those views include people with poor mental health can't get better. Now it's true that for a lot of people, mental illness is a lifelong experience, but they can manage it. There are coping strategies, there are resources available that may mean that for a large part of their life they're able to live without the symptoms. It's it's not the same for everyone. Some people will experience a certain amount of symptoms for their whole life. But to say that they can't get better is just wrong. There there are people that recover and there are people that are able to live in a state where they're managing. Uh, The next one really, really grinds my gears. And that's that people with mental ill health are either useless, don't contribute to society or can't get a good job. All of those things are absolutely untrue. I think you'll find if you were to do a survey of your workplace or your community, there would be people with mental ill health you didn't even know. There's probably loads. And we do contribute to society. We can work blooming hard. And we, we absolutely do contribute to society. Some of us even podcast. <laughs> um, and and the last the last two, I think these are really emotive in a way that the first is that people with mental ill health are selfish or that people with mental ill health are a burden and they're quite dangerous because actually a lot of people experiencing these things already think they're a burden so to have society cast those aspersions is is even worse and people with mental ill health aren't selfish they're going through something and they're also not a burden
1: I I think it's really important to highlight highlight the difference between being selfish and being self-involved because I'm well aware that my anxiety takes up a lot of space and I'm constantly in my own head so I am self-involved I am focusing on my own mind a lot but I'm not selfish I hope (laughs) no 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 so yeah I think it's a really really important difference and sometimes you have to put yourself first because you have to look after yourself you it's you know it's it's a common phrase but you you can't help others if you're not helping yourself to start with and you've you've got to you've got to take care of yourself and that that includes your mental health as well so yeah the people in your life should understand that and when you said about being a burden people in your life it's worth having in your life they should appreciate you and accept you for who you are and like you said people aren't a burden They're going through something so the people around you need to understand that and yes it can be hard on them and I know at some point we're we're going to discuss that but part part of the role of being a friend or a family member a partner is that you're there through the the bad as well as the good so you know like we all we all have good days and bad days so you, there shouldn't be a, um, a quota for sort of. um, you know, how much someone's allowed to feel low or allowed to just feel how they are, be who they are.
0: Yeah.
1: You just just have to be patient and be kind with people.
0: And if no other message is conveyed in today's episode, that is the one I want people to remember. Please be so careful when you're making those comments because they really can hurt the people around you. If any of our listeners have ever had first-hand experience of stigma and you're happy to talk about it, please do comment on our Facebook page or Twitter or reach out to us on Instagram because we would love to talk to you about those experiences. The more we talk, the more people we can help Now we are going to introduce our second guest ever in our podcast series and today we have the lovely Maggie. Maggie, hello. How are you? I'm not too bad, thanks. How are you? I'm good. I'm so grateful that you've chosen to speak with us on our second episode. There are a lot of misconceptions and a lot of stigma attached to the topics you're going to be discussing. And I think it's fantastic that you feel like you can speak out. And I think there's going to be a lot of listeners that will either relate to you, they'll be reassured by you, or they're going to gain quite a lot of insight into things that they don't understand. So to begin with, could you tell me a little bit about your emetophobia. I know from our conversations that this was something that you were diagnosed with at the age of 15. Which is a very extreme actual fear of vomit vomiting.
2: So before the diagnosis, I dropped quite a lot in weight. I went from about nine stone to about six stone because I stopped eating through fear of being sick. I was originally diagnosed as anorexic because of that, because that, that obviously is what it had to be, but it, it, it wasn't. When I finally got the diagnosis, it was kind of met with, even from my parents, it was, well, no one likes being sick. And it was met like that
0: from everyone. You told me you missed uh, quite a bit of school because of this. Was that because of the fear of being sick at school? The risk of school and sickness was
2: so great. I didn't go out. I didn't leave the house for about two years. I went to my garden. But be going out socialising wasn't wasn't an option for me. I finally visited a doctor again when I was about eighteen or nineteen because it was just becoming it was too much. I couldn't deal with it anymore. I wanted to unalive myself, and that's when the ball kind of got rolling to actually diagnose me with more issues that I'll talk about shortly. But also got me P for my phobia and opened me up to other people with it I was met with such I don't want to say hate but kind of closed-mindedness previously it was always I'd, I'd say I've got this this is what I have and oh I've got that I don't like being sick no no it causes so much anxiety like I can't leave the house you don't understand And finally, I was met with people that were like, oh, it's it's fine, you've got this and we've got this and we get it. It was nice to to be met with people with an an open mind and kind of stopped feeling like I was alone and that there was something wrong with me. There is
0: such a stark difference between being afraid of something and actually having a a medically diagnosed phobia they aren't comparable are they
2: no not at all
0: your whole every single waking minute is
2: focused on on this one fear it it controls everything you do from what you eat where you eat who you see just even little things like programs you watch on tv you kind of like go through them and make sure there are no certain scenes that are going to trigger you so it's just it's absolutely awful
0: and obviously you have an added perspective as well don't you because you are a parent obviously with children there's gonna be sickness how do you cope with that is that something you're able to manage or does it affect that as well I can
2: openly say I do not cope with it whatsoever okay um, I remember when she first got unwell I I collapsed I I managed to sort her out but I, I just couldn't and I I can't now still. It makes me feel so guilty and I feel that I'm not worthy to be her mum because it's something so simple and I I I can't help her and she wants me. But lately um, with the help of my therapist, I have seen that I, I am worthy. I'm just I'm just different. And she's always got someone to look after. She is unwell. So she's never like left a phone for herself. It, it it does affect it quite a lot, obviously. The thought of her going to school. It's it's all that's been going on in my head, but it's. It is how it is and hopefully I'm going to recover a bit more with therapy but who knows.
0: Recovery's never a linear process though, is it? So it's great that you're seeking therapy, you know, you should be super proud of that. There are probably going to be quite a lot of parents listening to you now and you've probably reassured quite a lot of them that it is absolutely okay to be a parent with a mental ill health condition. You are still a fantastic mother, you just adapt and you cope in different ways, and i I think that's absolutely fantastic, as Maggie has explained, this particular phobia centers all around the fear of being sick. But it can also extend to the fear of seeing other people being sick or even thinking someone's about to be sick. So for instance, if you're in a room and someone starts clearing their throat, you might all of a sudden have this overwhelming fear that they're about to be sick and you have to remove yourself from that room. So it is very different from just not liking being sick. It's not a pleasant experience and of course no one likes it. But this is very overwhelming and very intense. It might seem so simple, but it can be things such as as a child missing out on sleepovers because you're scared you might wake up in the night and be sick. So you miss out on things like that, missing out on school trips because you're afraid you're going to be sick on them. So actually, while they might seem trivial in the grand scheme of things that's a huge deal for children for teenagers and adults having to miss things or being afraid to go places like going out for dinner or lunch that we take for granted all of a sudden they become massive massive mountains that individuals have to climb and I'm really hoping that some of our listeners go away with a much better understanding of what it's like to live with a medically diagnosed phobia. I mean imagine being at your most afraid but feeling like that every minute of every day about a certain thing. And think about how exhausting it can be having to ask a loved one or someone you trust, will I be sick almost a hundred times a day? Maggie would also like to talk to us about her experience living with borderline personality disorder. Again, this is a highly stigmatised disorder. Obviously, all all through my
2: life, there was very clear for other people, something maybe a little bit different about me. Because I'd I'd feel on such an extreme scale and that was feel everything from the sadness to the happiness to the anger. Any emotion I'd feel a hundred times more than your average person. I just thought it was just me, just, it was just me. This is me, who cares? But my dad was a psychiatric nurse and he was picking up on things that I didn't see and maybe other people didn't see. So he kind of pushed me to go speak to someone because I had... um, like even spending habits were a little bit out of control, relationships, just kind of everything. It was all too an extreme. So went to the doctors at first got a, oh, well, I don't know. You're depressed. OK, fair enough. Antidepressants didn't change anything. Yeah. Went back to the doctor, saw a different doctor, uh, finally got a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder. And I didn't know what it was and I wasn't spoken about what it was. Like as soon as you say personality disorder, thoughts just go racing through your mind. You start thinking, oh, do I do I have voices? Or do I have split personalities? You kind of feel lost. You know, like, is there something wrong with me? But there's not, and you kind of feel like you've been lied to for like all these years. Like you are you. What's what's so wrong with being you? I opened up about it, and I'd speak about it at say like job interviews or work. And at the moment I'd say personality disorder, that's it. It was met with just like someone looking at me like I was insane like scum I was going to I don't know start a fire and it was just the horrific look oh my god who are you I ended up speaking to my dad about it because obviously with her experience it was the best person to talk to for me because I felt like I could trust him yeah and he explained to me how common it is and what the symptoms are and that actually it's 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 normal to experience what I'm experiencing and also explain that it is also one of the hardest mental illnesses to treat because there isn't a specific drug that helps with it. there isn't a specific course of therapy that helps with it. you are and a lot of BPD sufferers that I've found that I've spoken to are just are just left to suffer in silence other mental illnesses now you can more freely speak about they do seem like getting more accepted which is amazing but there still seems such a high stigma around the BPD and the EUPD, maybe because it's just kind of, I guess, kind of a little fun bag of every single one. And people are afraid oh, well, how are you going to react to this? How are you going to react to that? I still feel slight shame about it, but like, I don't feel like I can be as open as my my emetophobia. I, I'm getting there um, and I want to be able to talk about it because, you know, that's how we we learn by speaking. Yeah, it's it's a bit of a roller coaster.
0: Is there any sort of have you had any specific examples of sort of stigma? I know you mentioned the the job interview, but you know, are there comments people make or certain questions people ask that are all wrapped up in? the misconceptions i've had a friend in the past well
2: an ex-friend would always make comments so if i was in a group of them they would say oh don't say that maggie will get too upset don't do that maggie will get too angry and would make the point of adding the too upset too angry too happy you don't need to say it at all you don't need to mention it um luckily i managed to escape that friendship because it was extremely toxic but it, it didn't help my kind of anxiety related to it because I got very fearful of making friends because it was going to come out and then what if their attitudes changed towards me now luckily now I have an absolutely amazing friendship group like there is no judgment and it's it's basically like my family it's just amazing but it took a while to be able to build up to trusting them enough to be open and go oh by the way like, I have um, I've also had comments in the past from ex-boyfriends now I suffer I don't know if this will be too explicit so I'll try like keep it PG suffer a really high sex drive or a sex drive that simply isn't there they love it when when it's high but as soon as it's not there I'm getting questions on you don't love me you're cheating on me you must be getting it elsewhere and it's like they they never understand and then I kind of question myself and think do I love them am I cheating like all of these things haven't it, have it actually happened like, why why you know I want to but I don't want to like don't touch me mm-hmm. so yeah that's not that's not been a good relationship at all but
0: once you find those people that will support you and don't judge you and and don't ask you to quantify every five seconds why you're doing what you're doing or how you're feeling, it can save lives.
2: Oh, definitely.
0: If there was one thing you could say to our listeners about what they could do that would help you rather than make things worse, what would
2: that be? If you don't understand it and you don't know, just ask. Because if someone's trusting you enough to tell them they have it, then they will trust you enough to happily sit there and explain for hours what it is and what it does and from my experience being asked about it we we feel accepted and and normal that like we're not being judged because you've taken the time to to find out rather than sitting there instantly making your own illusion in your mind
0: obviously the whole point of this podcast is to have that open discussion I think you're right if people don't understand something just ask it's the best thing you can do. You do it with anything else in your life. If you don't understand something, you ask or you ask for help. So just ask the question. We won't be offended. Maggie, you have been absolutely fantastic. And I just want to say a massive thank you on behalf of Tia and I for coming on and speaking about your experiences. As we said at the beginning, these are some very stigmatised conditions and i think you've done a great job of opening up and offering an insight into what it's like to live with them and i i wish you all the best with your recovery And we'd love to have you on again in the future. So thank you. Now that actually brings us to the end of episode two. Once again, thank you so much for joining us. You can now find us on Apple, Amazon, Acast and Spotify. Thanks for sticking with us through all the audio mishaps at the moment as we're still working in lockdown conditions. Much of our recording is done over Zoom and of course everyone has access to varying levels of recording equipment. So fingers crossed when we are out of lockdown we will be able to do this in a more studio-based situation. As always, stay safe, be mindful, you wonderful people. If you have been affected by any of the topics covered in today's podcast, please see our show notes on our Facebook page for our suggested if you're interested in talking on our podcast, please get in touch through the Facebook page. We'd love to hear from you. Stay safe, you wonderful people.